just want to remind you that each week as you come in the, the building, you can pick up uh, the sermon outline if you like to follow along on the message. And on the back each week is a great companion article that is written by Larry Bailey. Uh, Larry does a great job of that. I'm so appreciative of Larry and that ministry that uh, he has taken on of writing those articles each and every week. So I want to thank him for that, and I encourage you to take advantage of those great articles that he puts together. Well, we are in uh, the 29th week of uh, working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and today we want to talk about that one thing, that one thing from Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. You know, many things in life can keep us from pursuing that one thing that is really important. In what some have called one of the more shocking moments in the history of the Academy Awards in 2017, the Oscar for Best Picture was inadvertently awarded to the wrong movie. It turns out that the presenters, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, were given the wrong envelope. And then things got even more awkward when the filmmakers for the wrong movie began their acceptance speech for an award that they had not won. It took about two and a half minutes for the mistake to be figured out before the correct winner was called up to the stage to actually receive the award. And apparently what had happened was that the guy with the accounting firm that was in charge of the envelopes for the Oscars was so struck by all the celebrities backstage surrounding him that he was busy tweeting pictures of himself with the various stars that just minutes before uh, had taken his mind off the envelopes. Many things kept him from the one thing. He just had one thing to do, make sure the right envelopes got out there. Of course, he lost his gig at the Oscars, and he even received death threats. Now, that's something out, out of whack there, right? Death threats over the Oscars. Well, today, as we enter into this Gospel of Mark text, we're going to see two awkward moments, kind of like that Oscars moment, two awkward moments in which those who look to be the least are celebrated as the winners. And then we're going to focus on a celebrity, if you will, who ends up losing everything because many things kept him from the one thing that is most important. So let's begin by looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Well, as we explore together how we can pursue the one thing that is most important, we want to just consider, first of all, some basic truths about the one thing. And right away from this little section uh, about the kids, we see that those with the least can be winners. Those with the least can be winners. 
in this section of the text, we see Jesus demonstrating some attitudes and actions towards kids. And I just want to notice them with you. And the first thing I want you to see is that it's important to bring your kids to Jesus. Look at verse 13. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them. Well, the idea here is that parents were continuously bringing kids to Jesus, wanting Jesus to connect with them in a very personal way. Well, let's make an application of this right up front. Parents and grandparents, you need to do all that you can to bring your kids and your grandkids to Jesus. Pray for them every day. Read the scriptures to them. Bring them to church. Bring them to Awana. Be vigilantly on the outlook for opportunities to have spiritual conversations or look for those teachable moments. And by the way, if you don't have kids in your family, don't limit it to that. Look for kids in your neighborhood, kids in which you might have a, a connection with, and in, invite them to church. Bring them to church. Bring them on Wednesday to our Awana program. Get them involved in coming to contact Jesus through Jesus' people. Next, I want you to know that it's important that we need to beware of attitudes that hinder children. Watch out for things that hinder children. Look at the last part of verse 13 and 14. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was, what? Indignant. And said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. Don't hinder them. This is remarkable. You know, it was just a few chapters ago in Mark that the disciples had already got in trouble for keeping kids away from Jesus. And Jesus said, I want to receive the children. And so he rebukes them. The word for rebuke is a very strong word. It means to sharply punish. Jesus was not happy with his disciples. The disciples didn't want Jesus to be bothered by the kids. But Jesus was more bothered by the attitude of the disciples. In fact, it says he was indignant with them. That means greatly vexed with anger. We could say Jesus was a bit ticked off here at the attitude of his disciples that were keeping kids away from Jesus. And that causes me to ask, do we do anything that keeps kids away from Jesus? I remember a number of years ago in another church that I served, one of the issues that I had as the youth minister was on Monday or Tuesday, almost every week, I get a call from somebody that was upset because on Sunday night, the kids had made a mess somewhere in the building. How dare they make a mess? How dare they spill on the carpet? Or how dare they leave a door open? The attitude was hindering children from coming to Jesus. People didn't love kids. They loved the building where the kids were called to meet. Let's not have an attitude that hinders children from coming to Jesus. The famous evangelist D.L. Moody once returned from a preaching opportunity, and he reported two and a half conversions. And so his host asked him, well, two adults and a, a child, I suppose. And Mr. Moody replied, oh no, oh no, two children and an adult. The children gave their whole lives the adult only had half of his life left to give. You see, children matter to Jesus. You know, one Gallup study reports that 19 out of 20 people are saved before the age of 21. 
19 out of 20 people come to know Jesus before they reach the age of 21. You see, in God's Oscars, it's the children who won the top prize. You know, one of our goals here at Garden Way in 2022 as a congregation is to bring onto our staff someone who specializes in a ministry towards children. And that's our goal, and we believe we're going to accomplish that goal. But I want to say this right now. We don't know who that person is. We don't know when they're going to get here. But I'll just say this. One person can't do it all by themselves. They need us to step up. They need us to look for opportunities to, instead of hindering children, provide opportunities for children to come in contact with Jesus and with his people. Let's do all that we can to make it easy for children to connect with Jesus. Third, I want you to see that we need to become like children to receive the kingdom of God. Once again, Jesus uses kids to teach us adults about a spiritual truth. Look at verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You know, kids have so much to teach us about faith. They are dependent. They are, in many cases, powerless. They are curious. They are trusting. And those are attitudes that we would be well served to apply in our own life as we look to come into the kingdom of God, to be kingdom citizens. We must be like children. And then finally, notice that Jesus blesses the children. Bless children warmly. Jesus was asked by the parents to touch their kids, but he does more than that. In verse 16, he took them in his arms. Isn't that a great picture? I just picture Jesus sitting there and picking up kids, holding babies and little kids and hugging them and blessing them, laying his hands on them and speaking words of blessing into their lives. He folded his arms around them, verbally blessing them. The word for blessed here is a very unique phrase. It's only used once in Mark, and it means that he fervently blessed repeatedly. So apparently Jesus was just speaking words of blessing and warm affection flowing out towards kids. What are we doing? What are we doing to speak words of blessing into the children that we have in our lives? Are we speaking words of goodness, words of honor, words of joy, words of blessing about God and his son Jesus? That's what we're called to do. Bless children warmly. You know, in the, in the first century culture in which Jesus lived, children were considered to be irrelevant or secondary citizens. And so when Jesus announces that children... The least are the winners. Those that are listening to him probably thought, well, he must be making a mistake. But to show that there's no mix-up, next we're going to be introduced to a man who no doubt would have been nominated for many awards. He makes a grand appearance, but he ends up experiencing great disappointment at the end. So let's look at this second awkward encounter as we discover, number two, that those with the most just might be losers. Those with the most might be losers. In verses 17 through 22, I want to just discover with you some things that can keep us from the one thing by looking at the encounter of this man with Jesus. Here's some things that might keep us 
from the one thing. We're introduced to a, a guy who would have been a celebrity in verse 17. And as he was setting out in his, on his journey, that is Jesus on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, we see that this man had everything that his culture, and by the way, our culture, would use to define him as a successful winner. He was wealthy. Well, that means success, doesn't it? Look, look at verse 22. He had great possessions. Luke's account of this same story tells us that he had great wealth, meaning he was very affluent. The other thing we might notice is that he was healthy. Not just wealthy, but he was healthy. When he sees Jesus leaving town, he's in good enough shape to run to meet him. We see also that he is young. Matthew, uh, in his account, adds that he was a young man, and the word specifically was used of a man in his 20s or 30s. All right, so he's wealthy, he's healthy, he's full of youth and vigor, he's successful. What else is he? He's powerful. From Luke, we learn that he was a ruler. The word was used of a, a synagogue leader or for a member of the Sanhedrin, which was like the, the Jewish Supreme Court. So there's a man of standing, of power in his community. Wealthy, healthy, young and powerful, everything that would make him a celebrity in his culture. Not everything, though, was negative about this guy. He was humble. He was humble. It would be uncommon for someone with such prestige and standing to run through the streets and to drop to his knees in front of an itinerant rabbi, and if he's willing to do that. He's also earnest. He sought out Jesus to ask him this question. He has the idea uh, that Jesus has something important to pass on to him. He's earnest. He's also respectful. Notice that he refers to Jesus as good teacher. Good teacher. We also might notice that he's unsatisfied. Even though he was a celebrity with a long resume and great reviews, he understood that he was missing something in his life. He wasn't happy with his legalistic, performance-oriented, graceless religion. He was moral, but he knew that he was missing something. Also, I want you to see that he was determined. He was determined. He would do anything that he needed to have eternal life. He went to Jesus expecting Jesus to assign him some great deed that he was ready to do on the spot. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then finally, we want to notice that he was eternity focused. He understood that this life is not all there is. That there is a focus on something more important, more lasting that we call eternal life. And so this is quite a picture, isn't it? This wealthy celebrity, a mover and a shaker in his culture, the epitome of success in the community, and he comes running to the peasant preacher from Galilee. He's probably wearing the finest of robes and no doubt immaculately groomed. But here he is kneeling in the dirt road on the edge of town. And he has a burning question that he must get an answer to. All of his life, all of his life he's been taught that he had to do good things in order to be saved. But something was bothering him deep inside. 
He appears to have it all together. He has it all. If somebody were to look at him, they'd say, look at that guy. He's got it all. He has the most. But those who possess the most, remember, might just be losers in Jesus' economy. You know, I think this is one of the more difficult and disturbing and surprising stories in the New Testament. It's really not a, a nice story. It doesn't have a happy ending. If we don't read this story and kind of scratch our heads and maybe even squirm in our seat just a bit, then we may not get the whole meaning of this story. Jesus, you see, is very dangerous to our conceptions of spirituality, our conceptions of Christianity, our conceptions of what defines a decent life. But there's also some good news here. As we consider this awkward encounter with the master, we're going to find an offer from Jesus, an offer that leads to a real life, to real freedom, that one thing, the one thing that this man is looking for, and Jesus has it. And so this story leads us away from a decent life and into the best life. That's where Jesus wants us to be. He doesn't want us just to survive. He wants us to thrive in the best life possible. So let's consider next this decent life, the decent way. This is where we might squirm just a little bit, folks. First of all, I want to announce to you right now that I'm rich. I'm rich. And by the way, so are most of you. I found on the internet this interesting little tool. It's called the Income Comparator. It's put out by the, the World Inequality Database. And what this, this little tool does is it allows you to plug in your annual income, and then it does its calculations, and it places you in a percentile for wealth across the world. Now, I don't think anybody would mistake Sue and I as wealthy in our community. Probably not most of you either. In fact, for many of us, we'd probably be considered on the low end of average. But when I plugged in our income, guess what I found out? We placed in the top 20% for world wealth. Understand that? That means 80% of the world is poorer than my wife and I. So that means we're rich. Now, secondly, I think we'd all like to think that we're fairly decent people, wouldn't we? Right? Of course, good people don't brag about this, but if God divided the world into two camps, good people and bad people, most of us would be on the good side, right? We know the rules. We go to church. We try to be nice to everybody. We don't murder people. We take care of kids. We might give some money away. We don't shoplift. We recycle. We volunteer somewhere. Sure, we have our problems and our addictions and our awful sinful habits that kind of hang on. But all in all, we're pretty decent people. Much like the man in this story. So, how does Jesus respond to this decent life? that we're all trying to build for ourselves and our families. Will Jesus come along and just kind of add the icing on the cake of our decent life? Is that what Christianity is all about? Well, let's consider what he does and says with this decent, successful fellow. 
in our story today, the guy that we call the rich young ruler. Again, back in verse 17, look at what it says. As he was setting out on his journey, literally that means as he was on the road. Mark uses this phrase, on his journey or on the road, and it's Mark's code word for discipleship. You see, to believe in Jesus is to join Jesus on the journey. That's what being a disciple is all about. It's not Jesus joining us on our journey. It's us joining Jesus on his journey. And so as Jesus is on the journey, on the way, this man runs up to him. And what does he say? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in his day, everyone assumed that wealth was a sign of a decent and, yes, even a blessed life. If you were healthy and wealthy, that was a clear sign that God was on your side. You were one of the decent ones, one of the good guys. The question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That implies a spirituality of achievement. That was the culture in which this man was raised. What can I do to get my life right? You ever ask that of yourself? What do I need to do? How do I get right with God and stay right with God? That sounds like a pretty good question to ask. But if we're just asking God to show us the steps or to give us the tools so that we can build our own decent life, then we're not getting the point of Jesus' message. Now you think that Jesus would be happy to have an eager, super-achieving, confident, get-it-done kind of disciple. But notice that Jesus is kind of abrupt with this guy. First of all, he answers by not answering the question at all, but by saying to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, what's going on here? Elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus does and he says things that imply very strongly, in fact, that he and God the Father are one. And so what's Jesus saying here? As we'll see in a minute, I think that Jesus is challenging this man. Jesus is saying, do you even know what good means? You call me good. Do you know what good means? You assume that you can just run up to me and have me dish out some quick, simple answer to your spiritual quest. You really think it's that easy, my friend? Do you think that Jesus is some sort of cosmic vending machine? You better think twice if that's what you mean by calling him good. And then Jesus gives a, a, a traditional, very expected answer. You know the commandments, he says to the young man. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Our decent, morally upstanding, rich man replies, I believe with total sincerity, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Is he lying? Is he delusional? I don't think so. I think he's a decent guy. Morally speaking, he works hard on the outer shell of his appearance. There are very few chinks in his moral armor. 
And so this guy comes running up to Jesus. He's excited. He's inquisitive. You think Jesus would be impressed. But instead, out of thin air, Jesus kind of erects a brick wall and lets the guy just slam into it. But notice that before Jesus does anything, our story tells us in verse 21, Jesus looks at him and loves him. Let's just sit on that, sit on that statement for just a moment. Jesus looks at him and loves him. Do you understand the, the depth of that statement? That's an amazing statement. The word for looking at him is an intensified compound of the normal word for look. In other words, Jesus looked intently. Jesus, we could say, examined his soul. He knew this young man inside and out. Now, I'm going to just assume that that was an uncomfortably long look. You ever got one of those from somebody? An uncomfortably long look. And I wonder if Jesus kind of just looked at that guy for just a moment. But notice that it was an examination that was rooted in love. It was rooted in love. What do you think would happen if someone was able to look right into your soul and know everything about you? Would they be shocked? Would they be disappointed? Would they walk away in disgust? You see, when Jesus looks at you, when Jesus looks at you, he looks at you through the eyes of love. The eyes of love. But there's something about the love of Jesus. Jesus' love doesn't stop him from telling the truth, does it? You know, it's easy to think that love means minimizing the truth. You know, if you really love someone, you should never question them about their lifestyle or their choices or their language or anything. But you know what? True love speaks the truth in love. And so to the young man, Jesus says, one thing you lack. This one thing, young man, there's one thing you lack. And I am sure the guy was thinking, oh, good, just one thing. That's awesome. I can do that. What is it? Tell me, Jesus, and I'll do it. Should I read my Bible a little more? I can do that. Not smart off to my parents or my spouse? Well, I can do better at that. You need me to volunteer a little bit more? I think I can work that into my schedule. I can do that. Just let me know what to do, Jesus. But he did not expect Jesus' next statement. Look at verse 21. You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And we get to the nitty-gritty of the story in verse 22. Disheartened, disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What is Jesus saying here? Why did Jesus make that statement? Does it mean that I have to sell everything that I have? How about you? 
Is that the prerequisite for discipleship for everyone? Is that the one thing? Sell everything you have and give it away? I don't think so. Next, Jesus is going to move us from the decent way to the disciples' way. The disciples' way, the way of discipleship. In, in Scripture, we find that, that Jesus doesn't tell every wealthy person that he encounters to sell everything. I don't think that's the one thing. There's a, a story about a rich man named Zacchaeus, for example, who gave away half of his possessions to the poor. Is that the one thing? 50%? 75%? 30%? 10%? What's the percentage that makes it the one thing? Doesn't matter, does it? But before we sigh with relief and say, ooh, ooh, I thought... For a moment, Rob, you were going to say Jesus was going after my bank account and my retirement savings. No, no. Before we get too excited, though, we have to realize this. Jesus isn't after our money. He's after us. That's what this story is about, right? He's after us. There's a, a well-known evangelism tool that has been used for many, many years now. And it includes a picture of a circle. And in the center of the circle, there is a large chair or throne. And then around the edges of the circle, you can see other circles. And those other circles, those represent the different activities and priorities in our life. Work, hobbies, school, relationships, sports, music. Throw in whatever it is important to you. And the way this tool works is to help us to understand that whatever sits on the throne controls all the other activities around the edge. So you'll notice on this throne, we have an S. That stands for self. Am I on the throne? And so the question we have to ask that I'll ask of you today is, what is on your throne? What is on your throne? Either Christ sits on the throne, or we have, in effect, put something else in that place of priority. It could be work, or our family, or our marriage, or our desire to be married, or our desire to not be married, or our hobbies. It could be just you or me sitting there in that chair. But remember, whatever sits on the throne becomes our God and will control all the other areas of our life. And so here is what Jesus asked the young ruler to do. In effect, he's saying, put me on the throne. Put me first. Right now, young man, you have another lesser God on the throne. Money, status, being a decent person. I don't want a little bit of your money. I don't want a little bit more of your time. I don't want a little bit more of your religious efforts. I want you, Jesus says, and I want all of you. Put me on the throne, Jesus says, and I'll give you something better, much better than you can even imagine. But sadly, our decent, successful, wealthy young man doesn't trust that better life. He doesn't trust the disciples' way. He's entrenched in the decent way. And so what does he do? He refuses to join Jesus on the road. 
What was the last thing Jesus told him to do? Come and follow me. Come on the journey with me. Get on the road with me. And so as the young man leaves, Jesus turns to his disciples. And in verse 23, he says, how difficult. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth. And we might even put in there in a parenthetical statement, and the decent. How difficult it might be for the decent, for those who have wealth and the decent, to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24 tells us the disciples were amazed at his words. What are you saying, Jesus? See, they're coming from that same cultural bias. Healthy, wealthy, power. Certainly that man is a part of God's kingdom. Uh -uh. Uh-uh, uh-uh. And so Jesus has to say it a second time. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Notice this time he doesn't say for the wealthy. It's just difficult. It's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus makes that that famous statement that people have argued and manipulated for years. But what does he say? It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man like us to enter the kingdom of God. What's Jesus saying here? Is he saying it's super hard? Is it kind of hard? Ever seen a camel? It's a big creature. Ever seen a needle? I don't care what kind of needle it is. It's small in comparison. And that big camel is not fitting through that tiny needle. In other words, it is impossible impossible for rich or for decent or for good people to get saved. It's impossible. Wow. No wonder. No wonder the disciples are amazed. They're astounded. They're like, what is going on? They're shocked. They're confused. If this guy who has met all of the measures of success and leads a decent life, if he can't get in, then who can be saved? Jesus looks at his disciples once again, and and I have to imagine this is maybe another one of those really long, uncomfortable looks, soul-searching, but utterly love-based looks from Jesus. And he says in verse 27, with man, this is impossible. But here's the good news, but not with God. With God, what? Say it with me. All things are possible. That's the God that we serve. And when we put that God on our throne, all things are possible. Do you catch that? Do you understand that? Jesus is referring to the absolute impossibility of our faith on our own. Getting right and staying right with God, trusting Christ with your whole heart, it's not just hard. It is impossible. You can be as rich or as decent or successful or as busy as you want, but you won't ever be able to score enough points to be right with God. That is impossible. In other words, there is no decent way. There's no decent way. You know, elsewhere in Scripture, the Bible tells us that not just that we have a weak or a lethargic faith, but that that we're spiritually dead. Do you understand that? Apart from Jesus, we are spiritually dead. God's word doesn't just say that I'm an imperfect person who needs a little tune-up. It tells me that I am, apart from Jesus, God's enemy. And that I have to surrender my weapons. 
But here's the good news. God can raise spiritually dead people like us. You believe that? God can change rebel hearts like ours. And he can make us his friends and his children. He does it all the time. This is what we might call the disciple's way, understanding this core truth. The disciple's way is a far cry from the decent way. It begins when you know that Jesus is looking at you with love. That's where it begins. And then it continues when you hear Jesus say, I don't want your decent, lukewarm, conventional, safe approach to faith. I want you. I don't want your activity. I want your love. I want your money. I want the heart that controls the money. That is how we let him sit on the throne. The great author and theologian C.S. Lewis compared the, the disciples' way to going to a dentist. This is a great illustration. You know, when our, when our tooth is hurting, what do we do? We go to the dentist. And what do we want? We want relief from the pain. But when you go to the dentist, he has a different agenda, doesn't he? The dentist wants to, to set all of our teeth right. Right? He wants to talk to us about having a, having a healthy mouth. Right? In the same way, Lewis says, our Lord is like a dentist. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of one particular sin which they're ashamed of or which is obviously spoiling their daily life. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked, but if once you called him in, he will give you the full treatment. You see that? Now notice how we get from the decent way to the disciples' way. It almost always comes from a hard word from the Lord himself. Jesus himself looks at us, he loves us, and then he says, you're so decent. But there's this one thing, a major impossible thing. You don't have me on the throne of your life. And this invitation to the disciples' way, have you noticed that it often comes when we hit a wall, an impossible wall? It comes maybe through a wall called health problems. Or it comes from a wall called relationship struggles. Or loneliness. Or grief. Or loss. Or addiction. Or a sin that we just can't shake. It is through this wall, this impossible thing that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to our heart. He wants to speak to our heart and he wants to say, this is of me. This is my doing because I love you and I want what's best for you. And so maybe he says to us, you wonder where I am in the midst of this impossible thing. You know what he says? I'm right here. I'm right here with you, and I'm calling you. I'm loving you. I'm disrupt, uh, disrupting your decent life where you're still on the throne, and I'm inviting you to something 
better. Much, much better. You see, that is the one thing. Well, why would anybody follow him this way? Why would anyone give up the decent way for the disciples' way? Towards the end of this story, in, in verses 28 through 31, Peter, in essence, kind of asks the same question. In essence, Peter says to Jesus, what's in it for me? What's in it for me, Lord? And we might assume that Jesus might come back at, at Peter and say, how dare you? What a selfish question, Peter. Never ask what's in it for me. But instead, Jesus more or less responds with, that's an honest question. And Peter, you deserve an honest answer. Why should we pursue the disciples' way? I'm going to give you one word. Joy. Joy. I'm going to close up by quoting C.S. Lewis one more time. He says, keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Do you want everything else? Do you want the joy, the abundant life, Jesus calls it? The goodness, the blessing? If you want all that, look to Jesus. That's where that one thing begins. How will you spend your one and only beautiful opportunity of a life that God has gifted to you? How will you spend it? You only have the one life. If you want it all, pursue Christ. Pursue the disciples' way. Pursue that one thing. Only then will we experience the true joy and fulfillment that that young man was looking for, that all of us are hungry for. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for the power of your word. Father, thank you for reminding us that apart from you, we are so broken, so lost, so empty. Lord, forgive us for trying to do it on our own. Lord, help us to grapple with the one thing that you're calling each of us to, Lord. Whether it's, it's money or a career or a relationship or whatever it is that's on our throne, Lord. Help us Convict us, move us this day to receive Jesus onto our throne where he belongs. Father, we pray for the boldness and the strength to do this as your children so that we might not be caught up in the ways of this world the decent way, but Lord, instead, we would be on the journey with you, on the way with you, following you as you've called us to. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we prepare for our closing song. <clears throat>
I want you to, to know that today some of our elders are going to be under the prayer corner sign there as we close. Maybe it just occurs to me, maybe you're struggling with this one thing. Maybe you don't know what the one thing is that, that you need to, to get off the throne so that Jesus can get on there. Or maybe today is the day you want to say, I, I want to get back to putting Jesus on the throne. And you want some accountability, you want some prayer. Our elders are there. They'd be honored to pray with you and for you. And so as we sing, we encourage you to make your way back to where the elders are. Just before we, we close, I do have a, a special announcement to make. Um, over the last four weeks, we've asked you to uh, fill out some affirmation forms. The elders have made a recommendation uh, for Joel Powell to become an elder of this congregation. And so they've asked me to, to announce to you today the elders' recommendation for Joel Powell to serve as an elder has been uh, approved by the congregation, affirmed 100% by the congregation. So, yeah, isn't that awesome? So Joel will begin to serve uh, as an elder of our congregation immediately, and uh, we'll have some more things to, to let you know about how that'll work within the, within the church coming up. But uh, we're just really pleased that uh, Joel and Dina are willing to make that sacrifice as they step into that mantle of leadership with the rest of our elders. So please pray for all of our elders. Uh, they have a heavy burden, and uh, they are good men, and each one of them has a good woman behind them. So pray for those couples that shepherd us so effectively. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer, and then we'll have that closing song. God, we are grateful for our church family, grateful most of all for the hope in Jesus that we have. Lord, may we be uh, just dogged and determined to keep Jesus on our throne. And, and Lord, when, 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 when we get things in the way, Lord, convict us in powerful ways so that we get the junk off the throne and make room for you. Bless us this day. Bless us this year, Father. Individually and as a congregation, we just cry out for your guidance, for your blessing. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Kathy.